Vinder's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Woo! Yeah, you're I'm back. exhausted, man. We're back. I'm we tired. are exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, we are recording this after being massively delayed uh, for a a long time in Atlanta through a connection from Mexico. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, man, we're still here for you people. We made so it. Even up. though we had a delay that was overnight, we're here. Yeah, you don't understand the degree of devotion that Adam and Joanna are showing to you right <laughs> yeah. now. I, I just had, I just got mediocre sleep last night because I always get mediocre sleep with children. They like didn't sleep and were in an airport, which is basically you might as well, you know, that's pretty much being in hell as far as I. There concerned. was a point when the flight got delayed from supposed to take off at nine because yeah, so we flew from Guadalajara yesterday, right? And then we landed in Atlanta pretty at a pretty normal hour, like six thirty, right, Joanna? Mm-hmm. There was a and we were supposed to take off at like nine. There was a point when we got delayed to like eleven thirty that I was like, okay, I can still do this. And then when they delayed it till eight a.m. the next today, I was just like, I need to. I'm gonna mm-hmm. slag Zach and be like, fuck it, no one gets a podcast on Monday. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> here we are. We're yeah. Here we are. Apologies uh, in advance if we're a little unintelligible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know you guys had a miserable time getting back, but I'm still super jealous of your trip. Tell me what were what. What were the, I mean, obviously you had lots of great things to drink, but what were some of the highlights? Joanna? Wow. Okay. Well, first of all, we were in Jalisco at the Hacienda Patron shooting a wonderful video series Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, just for our listeners. Um, Wow. We got to see the entire tequila making process and that was really extraordinary. I mean, we were in the agave fields, uh, the whole cooking process, fermentation process, distilling. It was just, and of course we got to meet a bunch of really amazing people who are a part of that process. So mm-hmm. I think the agave fields was probably my favorite. Mine too. Mine too. I like seeing the Tahona too, actually the t- seeing the Tahona. That was Cause, cool. Because so few producers. You know, really producers use it, especially big brands. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of the only one. Um, it was really cool to see the, like the traditional way of crushing agave. Um, yeah. It was really awesome. We also drank. Can I ask an extremely thing. dumb question yeah. of the both of you? Since I saw a video of you doing this, how heavy are the pinos? So fucking heavy. <laughs> <laughs> it looked it looked difficult, but I was like, I don't know if this is just for show or not. Uh huh. They're very heavy. They're like fifty pounds, and that was a small wow. one that we picked up. Yeah, and I think what's so weird about it is it. I, I think just because of the color, and you see the people who work with them all the time operate so smoothly around mm-hmm. them. They're like, oh, I, I wonder if this is probably light. Yeah, you know, and easy. then you go to pick up and you're like, oh, this is not light at all. This is a very yeah, You think it's like a dense- pineapple and yeah. it is not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. This is a very dense, dense thing. They they um, range from like 20 kilos to like 100 kilos. My God. Yeah. yeah. It was pretty cool. It's it was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, so want, like world's strongest man competitions, but instead of carrying those giant ass rocks, they just carry pinas around. That'd be cool. Yeah. Well, and what's really <laughs> amazing is like usually, you know, the person who is harvesting them is responsible for like one row. Mm-hmm. And so what they'll do is they will go and they will harvest the entire row, right? So they will, you know, pull the, the pina out of the ground. They will completely uh, trim it, et cetera. Mm-hmm. They will go down that entire row and do that. And they will come, they will put down their tools and they will come back and literally put each pina into a, you know, pick Load it up and up. put it into a wagon or something. And you're just like, wow, the amount of physical labor is just really, really intense. And also a freshly cut pina has like like certain chemicals in it or whatever that reacts with the skin um, that it, you like can't touch your face or eyes or anything after you touch one. Yeah. 
and it does illustrate i think a, a thing that we sometimes forget in talking about beverage alcohol that like when all these customs and traditions and things were invented just how desperate people were to have alcohol like <laughs> you talk about all this labor the fact that people are like let's dig this like basically like heart of a plant out of the ground after like 10 years hack off the the other plant material you know crush it roast it like distill it like i tip my cap to the kind of like like it's easy for you and me we just fucking open a bottle and pour it in a glass yeah like, we, we get it we order it like on an app and it's at our house an hour later like <laughs> you forget or it's easy to forget for all of us like just how much labor goes into these things mm-hmm. now but also so how much. like that was the only option if you wanted alcohol in the past it's really yeah. true so funny um we drank a lot of really good stuff Jenna, what was your favorites I had two really standouts for me from the mm-hmm. whole trip. One was a very special Añejo Old Fashioned um, made with yeah. chocolate bitters. Wow. I think that was the best drink I've ever had. It was really good. It was, it was really amazing. good. It yeah. was made by um, this this guy, Pepe, who is the – well, he's, he's a bartender, but he's the Latin American brand ambassador for Patron, and mm-hmm. he was in the sixth uh, chapter of the docuseries – with us um Making we're talking cocktails. about cocktails and stuff mm-hmm. and yeah that was a pretty amazing cocktail yeah talk about premium spirits in your cocktails right yeah that yeah was real good <laughs> totally the, the other one was that it's a i guess it was pepe's take on a car, uh, carajillo cocktail which is made with espresso and liquor 43 um, oh. shaken and served on the rocks which was also very good yeah and equal parts which is really cool yes equal parts nice. um yeah and then for me i had my first ever martini made with tequila oh yeah that was really was good. good uh mm-hmm. they use uh blanco um and it was a mm-hmm. really really cool take on the martini um and then i also had i just i guess uh, my favorite just overall sort of expression was the blancos or the silvers as they call yeah. them silver yeah um, mm-hmm. they were just really beautifully expressive of of what of the terroir uh, where the agave was grown and it was really interesting to learn a lot about that and mm-hmm. the similarities between you know a product like tequila and like wine in terms of how much where it is produced especially if it's then um you know distilled and in the manner of the ancient process with the tohona and stuff how much it really does express where it was where it comes from and i learned a lot about the differences between these highland agave tequilas like Patron, etc., and the a lowland tequila like Fortaleza, mm-hmm. um, and what sort of makes them different is that in the Highlands, you know, I think you sort of think about like it's mountain fruit, right? So it's, it's a mountain plant, and so there's more stress, and so there's so the pinas actually have a higher sugar content, which mm-hmm. creates like a much richer, like fruitier tequila, and then in the lowlands, uh, sort of in the valley as they call it you have a you know a tequila that's much more vegetal mm-hmm. um and it was really interesting to 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 you know be to learn those differences which i had no clue about mm-hmm. uh so that was fun but we drank a lot of tequila what about you zach uh well you know i i don't think i drank any tequila in the last yeah. week i guess i <laughs> we drank it for you. I, I did it was not quite going to mexico but i did get to go to my first in-person wine tasting in uh, more than two years, uh, Wines of Washington had um, a big trade in media tasting um, this last week, um, 
which was really cool. Um, I mean, it was like a reunion for a lot of us, uh, a lot of people that I uh, knew have known for a long time, but have not seen in person in at least two years. Uh, so it was really cool. A lot to, lot to try. I went to a very fun seminar uh, looking at um, tw- wines from 12 um, very kind of historically and, and uh, currently important vineyards in the state. Um, and that was really cool. I don't know. I mean, as far as things that particularly stood out to me, um, always really hard to pick any, you know, especially in those things. Mm-hmm. I will say I had a, a really beautiful Chardonnay from Tranche, which was um, from the Salilo Vineyard in the Columbia Gorge, uh, which was really, really beautiful. And, you know, and then just had a lot of wine and uh, <laughs> don't, don't, don't totally remember the last part of the tasting. Uh, it was a little, uh, <laughs> definitely got, definitely got a little wild. Um, got a little too I mean, much really, fun. but just like out of practice for those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Too much fun. Zach got too much As fun. I expected. And I will tell you this, my, my my last little piece on this is like uh it, the game has changed for me with uh now having two kids at home because like i got home at like 5 30 or something like that and like both you know the kids are both like uh my son's like hey dad let's look like let's do stuff and i'm just like oh man why can't i just go to bed now yeah um so that was that was a little rough but uh but you know made it through uh toughed it out that's awesome and, um and had a fun time so that amazing. was amazing amazing great so uh topic for today is something that we sort of chatted about you know Amongst the three of us, we also talked about it, uh, you know, as a editorial team. And, it, you know, there's a lot to say about it. So I don't think we're going to get through, um, you know, everything that probably is to say about this this topic in, in one conversation. But the idea is the allure of small brands. Um, mm-hmm. And what is it about them in the world of beer, wine, and spirits uh, that is so captivating, especially when it comes to members of the trade, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, what is it about something being small that immediately seems to unlock sort of this, uh, you know, openness that the trade has towards it? Um, and I think it's particularly interesting in the wine and spirit space, um, especially because in spirits, and I'm speaking most specifically now about like whiskeys, right? Bourbons. Sure. It takes a really long time and a lot of money. It, it seems to make really, really outstanding bourbon. Mm-hmm. Um, yet a lot of, and so that usually means that big brands make that bourbon, but it seems like a lot of people have really embraced these really small brands, despite the fact that their liquids aren't that great. Right. To be honest. And then in wine, I think it's it's a little bit different, right? Like you have, again, you have small wine brands that, are, again, aren't that great, but maybe it's the story. But then you have some that are outstanding. So I don't know, Zach, I thought we could start with you just because you've sure. been on the purchasing side before of this with, mm-hmm. with the trade. What do you think is this sort of like, how would you describe this sort of allure that we're discussing, right? Like, what do you think is so captivating? Why do you think it it does seem to unlock that openness to try when someone realizes the brand is, I don't know, boutique or small? Uh, It's a good question. And I'm going to kind of give a couple of possibilities because I don't think there's one uh, specific answer here. I think one of them is, let's say the noblest of the reasons um, is that I think that certain people, whether they're, um, you know, buy, you know, in charge of buying for a retail shop, for a restaurant, whatever, do recognize that one of the benefits of, of having someone like that in a, in your company, whatever, whatever it is, is that, you know, I as a buyer got to try a lot of things, right? More, more wine or, or spirits or whatever than 
than the average consumer would get to try, but even that like, you know, people, other people, you know, like my servers or whatever would get to try because I was part of my job. And in sifting through all of that, um, all of the possibilities, which are, you know, especially in wine, but even in spirits these days are really, really vast. You do sometimes come across things that are just uh, relatively unknown um, products that you think are of high quality mm-hmm. and being someone open to those things and, and kind of looking for those things may afford you several possible benefits. One is that those things may be um, less expensive because they're not well known. And therefore you can perhaps um, offer your guests a better experience at a lower price or alternatively offer your guests a, a comparable experience at the same price, but profit more as a restaurant or bar or retail shop or whatever, both of which have, you know, their motivations. And, um, and and more than that, you can offer perhaps an experience that is that is definitely resonant to some set of of consumers, which is here's something you don't know about yet. Yeah, Let exactly. me show it to you. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, that unfortunately can often shade into a kind of snobbery that is, you know, we've I think we have discussed this in some facet fashion on the podcast before because I'm pretty sure I remember making uh, a reference to High Fidelity that like the movie that is that there is a a part of the of the trade that is i think unhealth un, obsessed to an unhealthy degree with knowing about things that no one else knows about mm-hmm. and and being like oh you've never tried this before oh you don't right. even know about that and whether that is a wine whether that is a a spirit you know be it a, an individual uh, product or a whole category or whatever there is a a part of the trade that i undeniably gets off on that kind of you know that kind of insidery information mm-hmm. and 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 is more concerned with being ahead of not only consumers but maybe their peers and contemporaries and that is i think where you get the really negative side of this where it's because it's small production and therefore um you know hard to get or un- relatively unknown those things get promoted ahead of are you know kind of i think inarguably better product that is dismissed only because it's made in larger quantities and and again you know there's a huge gradient in both wine and and spirits between truly mass produced things tiny boutique things and kind of everything in between and where you draw a line is i think relatively arbitrary for most people i don't know does that sound kind of does that make sense does that square That's, with yeah. what you guys have seen that's ex- kind of exactly what I was going to say as well. Like a, the insider thing, definitely. But I also think that's just like a human response. Like people, mm-hmm. like not just trade <laughs> people want to do that, but like everybody wants to do that, right? You want to feel like you know you know things before others do. Um, yeah. And I think there's obviously a certain value attributed to to small production. Like there's this not veneer, but maybe veneer of like artisanship, craftsmanship. Um, by actual people. And I think there's like to like those types of brands makes you seem like better and like you have better taste. Better or more in the know, right? As you guys mm-hmm. are saying, it's like, oh, you know, I mean, I think, I think the best example of this that I'm going to use is champagne. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, you, okay, well, you know, you know, Dom and Crystal and whatever. Well, I know Solos. I know all these. And someone's going to come at me right now and be like, dude, everyone knows Solos now too. But you know, <laughs> but actually, I think a lot of wine, people who, who consider themselves real champagne lovers have never heard of it, right? Um, mm-hmm. That they know, they know the growers, right. the grower champagnes that, you know, are boutique. And it, it, yes, there is this like cool kid 
thing that happens there. Yeah. Um, even if some of the growers don't make champagne that if we were to blind up against, yeah. I don't know, a Krug uh, or a Dom is as good. That's a, that's a rough um, blind tasting <laughs> for, yeah, for the growers. A, let's go grower. Um, but, you know, <laughs> but, I, but I do think that there's, you know, like I know some places here in New York that like will only have grower champagnes on their list. Um, and I know that that's, they want to show that they know a lot about champagne, but then again, you think about it from the perspective of the consumer, like then the consumer shows up and like, doesn't recognize any of these producers, mm-hmm. even if they're a champagne lover and thinks, Oh, well now like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. I was going to say like this whole idea of like, you mentioned it earlier, of like these smaller producers, maybe not being the best always. Um, and is it because it's like, there's more forgiveness for flaws in those instances because they are small and because they do because they're boutique. Yeah, I think. I mean, if I take it back to my, you know, my first, my first career in the music business, I think uh, the bands I worked with that were indie, they we we got a lot more. We, we had more critics that gave bands more benefit of the doubt. Like there was, right. it was if they if they were known to have talent and they had a few great songs, like they didn't trash the album, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas like once you're a really big band and you're super successful, like the entire album has like as Kendall Roy would say, they all have to be bangers, only bangers, right? <laughs> and I think that's very true, right? right you, less you, forgiveness. It, it better be amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in indie rock, like it was okay to have a few songs on the album that were like, oh, these are skippers, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> or these are these are like the low points of the album, but gosh, that these other three songs are like the most brilliant things I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I do think that there is more forgiveness there because it you, it feels more like someone is – doing something truly that is truly artistic Mm -hmm. and so and trying to push against something yeah Mm -hmm. and so therefore we're we look at it differently than it's like well i know how much money you have Mm. right so like if you have this much money and you're still taking shortcuts and you're still you know and you're and you're really just thinking about like all the ways that you can make the largest margin but not the best product then I think that we're harder on things, right? Would you agree yeah. with that, Zach? Yeah. Well, I was going to say there there are two things that struck me in, in what both of you said that I think are important to note here. One is that I think that there is an implicit um, sort of uh, instinct in all of us to assume a degree of kind of honesty and purity with something that is small production yeah. that we just don't assume about something that's large production. And actually, mm-hmm. I, I, it's interesting to bring it back to what um, where we started this whole podcast. I think like in doing the podcast that um, a series that I did with Patron, I think one of the really interesting things to me in the through line there is how cognizant they are of the fact that like they are really trying to remain true to a traditional method of production mm-hmm. at scale. And like, that's not to say that every large production product in this, in these categories, spirits, wine, et cetera, a lot of them do take shortcuts. A lot of them, or do things, have to do things differently as they get bigger. It's just the reality of of scale in certain ways. Mm-hmm. But I also think that it's a little bit um, reductive of all of us to be like, "Ooh, small good, big bad." But I think that happens. Oh, it absolutely does. Yeah. I think, but I think that is what explains this, right? Mm-hmm. That that we that uh, everyone throughout this whole process, whether it's um, you know journalists, uh, you know tradespeople, or consumers. Here, oh, this is a 500 case winery. Well, they must be doing something really, really spectacular. Mm-hmm. When maybe it's like they're making 500 cases. Like 
of crap wine. Like there's no law that says right. just because you only make 500 cases, it's good. It's just, that's all you made. Cause for whatever reason you have another career, you're, it's all the fruit you can get, whatever. You don't have any more money. Like some of those can be wines can be great. And I've had great, great wines from small production wineries and, and have at times tried to champion in them. Um, and it's, it, as a buyer, it's sometimes easier to do that because you're not trying to reach the audience that I, we reach as, media people, you know, we're, we're talking about really small production products can be kind of annoying to our, to audiences because they just can't get them. Right. You know, they're not available in their state at all, or there's four bottles and like, you know, good luck. Um, so that's part of it. I think the other thing is to come back to what, to the champagne analogy in particular, which I think is a very apt one. The other challenge, in addition to just sort of saying like, are these actually as good as some of the larger production champagnes is that explaining and understanding the differences in all these different grower champagnes in the ver- in the specific villages that they operate in or the vineyards that they work with is a kind of um, obsession over small detail that is like fine for an individual person to pursue, whether that person is a sommelier, a wine director, a, a writer, or even just a really uh, dedicated consumer. But it does get to a point that I think is important to note in here, which is like most people don't give a shit. And, and that, and they can Mm -hmm. not give a shit while also being really like serious wine drinkers. And I think that to me, sometimes as, as a, you know, whatever hat I wear these days, it is tiring to me sometimes to feel like I have to, like, I'm looking at literally on my bookshelf here where we record Peter Liam's champagne book, which is a great book, but Mm -hmm. like I can read two pages of it at a time before my eyes. like. And he, he does incredible work of, of going through and being like, we're going to detail like all the villages, all the producers, everything. And like, it's a great resource. It's a great resource to me on the rare occasions that I really want to dive into it. Mm -hmm. But for me, going to a restaurant, going to a wine shop and being like, having to parse through all of these different choices is more than I often want to do. And again, I mean, we're talking about someone like me who's like, I'm as into this as pretty much anyone is. Like there aren't a lot of people who go way beyond me. Um, And so I think that sometimes the, the challenge of this kind of small producer obsession is you actually alienate a lot of consumers by being too <sighs> kind of hyper specific. And I don't mean the producers themselves do, but the way that they get talked about to, to producers, you know, whether it's, um, you know, to consumers rather that is. And, and, and I think that's I think an important note for everyone. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. but also like, is that romance carried past the, tradesperson like i don't know mm-hmm. that it really is i think i see i saw times when i would serve people and we'd be talking about two different you know willamette valley pinot noirs from the same producer from different vineyards and i'd be trying to explain what differentiated them and i could see them being like you know just like pick one i don't really care <laughs> yeah. and like that's a totally 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 reasonable and understandable response mm-hmm. to all of it so, right like yeah. if you tell if you're telling me it's good cool man <laughs> like yeah i yeah. just want to drink something delicious and right. you also told me that it's so small that I'm probably not going to be able to easily find it again. So mm-hmm. cool, dude. You know, and, 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 I, <laughs> and I do look, look, I do think there is a difference uh, in some of these, right? Like I do think championing, 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 uh, Adam speak, uh, <laughs> you know, regions that are up and coming with up and coming producers is, is also different than, I don't know, just small for small sake, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I mean, every single producer that I love to talk about in Virginia would be considered small. You know, I think it's just a fun region. Um, You know, there's no really big producers there. Same with, uh, you know, certain 
tequila producers, et cetera, right? They're, they're in places in Jalisco that are, you know, where they're giving back to the full community and, you know, helping to employ people in their communities as small producers, which I think is great. Mm-hmm. I'd say that some of the big people don't too. We saw, I mean, we saw that this week, right? That's what Patron yeah. does. But I think, um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a, you know, a romanticism. There just is, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, I think, I think the thing with alcohol that we, we get in our heads is that we really love this idea that it's one person through the whole process mm-hmm. when it really boils down to it, right? Like the person yeah. like who grew the the grapes owned that vineyard. I think that's also really important, right? With, with wine, it's like, you know, how many of these small producers we're we talking about don't actually even own the vineyards, right? They're buying from another vineyard owner and yeah, okay, fine. Like they, they can, they can have the, the vineyard grower grow to their specifications somewhat, right? But not, they're not, they're not out there in the, in the vineyard every day, uh, pruning and everything. Someone else is doing that. The person who owns that land farms that land. Right. But we love this idea of like, oh, we grow, we harvest, mm-hmm. we crush, we barrel age one person or, you know, a family or whatever. And that's just not always, that's not the case. Um, you know, at, at most places, um, or like the brewer who does it all and then also works behind the bar in the tap room. Um, I think, you know, that's, but that is what's so romantic. But when you think about food, you know, and Joanna's, as I like to say, as a former food journalist, because now you're an alcohol journalist, uh, you know, I'm sure that's the same thing, right? But the chefs, there's not one chef. There's a lot of people making that dish. And for the most part, like, if you go to eat it per se, right? Like, Thomas Keller didn't do shit with that food. Touch food. <laughs> Never touched it. He was yeah. out in the dining room having drinks with somebody, if he was even in New York at the time, mm-hmm. you know? So it's just... But I think that there is that moment. We want to think that that's what happened. Well, I think that's also why like farm to table had its moment, right? Like people loved that idea. Like you were harvesting the vegetables and they were being cooked and then coming right to your, you know, right in your meal. And I think that was very romantic for a long time. And then everybody, everybody used the term and it became kind of meaningless. Right. Like is Pat LaFrieda really butchering my steak? Come on. (laughs) <laughs> and I think that that you're you hit on something very important there too, Adam, which is like we not only is there an, a romanticism about like it's a one person or a family or a, you know a very small group of people making these things, but again, it comes back to that thing I said before about like this kind of perceived honesty in these products that like mm-hmm. that that you know we we and this is not to say like anyone on this is really doing anything wrong, but like there's there's a a, a clearer and more romantic story to tell about someone who's like you know whether it's a fifth generation person doing it carrying on a small family Mm -hmm. tradition or it's a someone who like fell in love with x and decided i'm gonna quit my job and you know finance it well maybe that's not so romantic but whatever Mm -hmm. you know they're gonna they're gonna do something and and that something is you know make wine or make uh, whiskey or whatever and and like those stories exist for sure. And like we tell them sometimes and like I certainly um, would tell those stories to guess um, when and where they were true about products that I carried at my restaurants and stuff like that. But I also think that like we sometimes get like the story uh, sometimes, I don't know, it overwhelms the product um, or like the story is more compelling than the product. Yeah, and that, I think that is like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know whether that's again, like I'm, I'm of two minds of this because the thing I would always tell my staff at times is like, you know, my job as a wine buyer is to ensure that all the wines on the list are good. Mm-hmm. Your job is to like connect the person 
to the wine when I'm not able to do that, right? And and the part of the way you right. connect people to these products that are all hopefully good is with the story, right? right. And so yeah. mm-hmm. you you recognize that hey, this is a table that maybe the story of this wine or this winery is going to resonate with for whatever reason, right? But that it is undeniably true that everyone has to be a little careful that we not kind of fall in love with the story and neglect the fact that like the product should also be good mm-hmm. right and if the, i personally and this is my opinion again there are different people who might have different uh takes on this in the industry and i'd you know be interested to hear how you feel about this and, and coming back to what you were talking about adam about the you know bars only serve, serve grow champagne or whatever I, I personally would rather ensure that the product quality is great and then think about the story then say okay i'm gonna shop for stories first and then hope that i can find product that also is good mm-hmm. um but you know again i can see people kind of having a different approach to that without being you know i think without like doing something wrong mm. but i also think that some brands are built on a story yes first, I agree. the story first and not the not necessarily the liquid oh i definitely think so i think i mean mm-hmm. i don't want to i mean we've talked about it. that before we yeah. won't name any names on this podcast yeah, but i think i think there are in in all three categories that mm-hmm. we cover there are brands that have become very celebrated in certain cities that i think are built almost you know singularly on the story right mm-hmm. exclusively on the story um which again is good for you if you have the you know if you figured out how to do that in a way that's just captivated everyone um but I think that is also because, as Zach says, like the story sells. And I feel like mm-hmm. also with, with these stories, the ones that sell the most too aren't just like Joanna's a small time winemaker and she uh, you know, has you know, has this piece of property that she fell in love with and makes wine. It's always like they always I feel like captivate trade the most when it's like so and so is the great great grandson of this now really huge brand that mm-hmm. is owned by this huge company, but mm-hmm. they decided to, you know, they found their great, great grandfather's old notes and are making a recipe that's more in line with what he made or so-and-so, you know, makes wine for X, you know, big producer, but on the weekends, she makes this wine. And I feel like those are the stories everyone's like, yeah, because it's also like that kind of like, sticking it to the big companies mm-hmm. type thing that uh that seems to really make get people very very excited when it comes to spirits mm-hmm. um you know i think we think about that with food again in that connection right it's the so and so was a huge you know was was the sous chef or was the main chef at a large restaurant group and now they're out on their own yeah and like and then we give them all press i mean we're, uh, we do it all the yes. time Yes. I mean, I was going to mention the press thing because I, I think that's an important part of this yeah. as well. We're guilty. But yeah. I was just going to say we're very guilty in this because when we're being pitched about producers, uh, new new ones especially, you know, I'm always asking what what's the story here? So, so that's kind of, that's kind of tricky, right? Because you, you mm-hmm. want a story um, and you want press. Obviously you want people to cover you, but if you don't have a story, then then you're kind of screwed. Um, but the, your other point about the food stuff, um, I think to to a greater extent with food, the proof is in the pudding. Right. Over Maybe spirits. Literally, literally yeah. in the pudding. Yeah. Like if, if yeah, sure, they, the place can get pressed, but then if it's not actually good, like I, I don't think people hang on to it in a way that maybe with spirits or whatever, with uh, drinks, they do. 
Yeah, I think you're. I think that's right. Um, like if I the, mean, if I do. The food's ultimately, not good. Like people won't like it. Right. Right. right? That's true. That's well. Yeah, I guess. Except if the or if it gets a bad review. Yeah, if it gets a bad review, but like, then has per se really like been that impacted? I mean, didn't it get like look one of the worst reviews right pre-pandemic? Mm. You know, where like yeah. Wells took away a star, right? And you know, I mean, but, but like I, the story of the restaurant, like per se, is yeah, very different se. than the story of like a small restaurant that someone yes. opens. Like per se exactly. is like a different. That's like that's like saying that you know I don't know. Um, There's your uh, crew. You know, Casamigos yeah. got a bad review or something. Right, like, right, 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 right. Um, no, that's true. I want to add one one piece here really quick too, yeah. which is to, to what Joanna was saying about this about press. Like, I, I want to think. I want to be clear. I don't think there's an inherently anything wrong with anyone, whether it's um, you know the the media trade or consumers resonating with a story, right? Like we are oh, yeah. human human beings are dri- we are so motivated by stories. We look for them in the world around us. And saying like, you know, a new product launch or a or something like that, a new wine, whatever. Like it does to some extent and it needs a story of one kind or another. And one way to tell a story is like, this shit's just really good. Right. Like, yeah. And you can, and, and, you know, we get samples all the time and sometimes they don't have like a super cool backstory to them, but we try them. We're like, this shit's really good. And we'll talk about it. Cause it's really good. Mm-hmm. Conversely, sometimes the people, the story behind it, the mission of it, what it, what it's the, the product is set out to do um, is novel or, or remarkable. And sometimes those things get attention, even if the quality is not, superlative and that's okay too but it is important i think that we all be a little bit clear-eyed about why we are telling the stories we're telling and whether the story is more about well you know the story or if it's really about the quality of the product and i think there's space for both Mm -hmm. yeah i agree i i I do i think that you know you don't want to get wrapped up in in either right like don't you, you i think it's it's being open to the product uh and it's being open to the story or if you're the bi- the big company, being open to telling some sort of story, mm-hmm. uh, and and figure out what that story is, um, right. you know, even if it is the story of the founding, and then what you've done with the brand since, mm-hmm. uh, I think that those are important. Like I, th- you know, I, I feel like sometimes with some of the bigger, you know, brands, especially when the the brand w- was once small and then got large and was purchased, there can sometimes be like a a resistance to telling the the origin story, you know, we're talking about like it's small time, you know, beginnings, but like, that's what we want to know, you know? And then we want to also know that you've, you've made it better that like that capital infusions made the product better that you've kept all the good things about it when it was small, but made it better. Not that you took the brand and then figured out how to cut all the costs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. That yeah, and you I think, didn't. You didn't. You know. Um, what's the. You know. You didn't. Uh, like private equity. The shit out of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think. And I think that is. You know. When, when it comes down to it, that is often the resistance that trade and press have. Is if you can show us that you have kept the quality or made it better, we're all in. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know anyone who then rejects those products. Everyone's open to them. Right. But if it's like, oh no, like I take, like, you know, this is nothing like what it used to be. Um, this is worse. <laughs> then, yeah, people are people will have biases. I mean, that was the whole fear of the Goose Island purchase, right? Um, 
But actually, well, it's like if you tank the story and the quality of the product, and the product and the brand, what, what does anyone want out of it? Right, right? But it's every, just available. But every beer expert will, will ultimately admit to you that the barrel series, you know, the Goose Island comes out every year, is still as good, if not better. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and that those added resources have made it perhaps even more interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've gotten access to even better barrels for the aging process. You know, they've been able to make even cooler stouts and stuff like that. That I think is what's important, and that's mm-hmm. why that brand still has a place amongst you know beer geeks. So I'm not going to call them craft beer drinkers sure. anymore, but beer geeks. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting. We'd love to hear your thoughts. A lot of people have been emailing in uh, recently yes. or hitting us up in our DMs and things like that. We've really appreciated it. Um, it's really amazing to hear from all of you and how much you enjoy the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really cool to especially hear feedback on my uh, my natural wine theory. Your hot take. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so hit us up, podcastofvinefair.com, or you can find us on Instagram. Um, yes. I'm just at Adam Teeter. Um, Joanna, what's your handle? I think I'm JC Sherino. You need to know your handle, Joanna. It's it's Joanna Sherino on Twitter, I think, and JC Sherino on Instagram. Adam doesn't like to talk about Twitter, but you can find me on both at Zijabal. Yeah, but you should probably just follow him on Instagram because he tweets a lot. (laughs) (laughs) It's not always about this stuff either. Sports tweets. Yeah. Also, if you have any topics you'd like us to discuss, please write in. Yeah, especially if you if you want to hear Zach's opinion. Yeah, let us know. You'll get that no matter what. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I'm gonna go to bed. Get some sleep, guys. Uh, Please. But I will. uh, I will talk to you guys on Friday. Talk to you then. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible, and also to Keith Beavers, VinePair's tasting director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.